unscripted. Each episode is available to view on YouTube, so be sure to check us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So a lo- another justification that uh, some people bring up for the ban has to do with official declaration one from Wilford Woodruff when polygamy was was ended. Um, but Wilford Woodruff mentions this line. He says that the Lord will never allow the prophet to lead the church astray. And therefore, some people take this idea and say, well, therefore, the priesthood ban must have been sanctioned by God because otherwise... It, this is an example of the prophet leading the church astray. Well, what what thoughts do you have on that? Yeah. Uh... Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We've got Paul Reeve with us once more. We're not going to introduce you again because we already did that <laughs> last time. And we've got a lot to talk about. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, last episode, we talked about the beginnings of the priesthood ban. We got into a lot of fascinating history. Alex and I were just sitting here listening, just soaking it all in. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're going to jump to the end of the priesthood ban and some of the things that happened after the priesthood ban ended um, in 1978. That was just me throwing a date in there to sound cool. Like I (laughs) I don't know if anybody caught that. Um, But what I find really fascinating about the end of the ban is how different it is compared to the beginning of the band. The beginning, as you outlined very clearly, is just kind of a mess. And the end doesn't seem to be that way. Could you talk to us a little bit about that dichotomy? Yeah, sure. I think uh, President Kimball is pretty deliberate in terms of receiving a revelation. I think uh, he recognizes that the restrictions have become so entrenched by this point, and there uh, was a long-standing lack of consensus amongst the leadership itself, uh, going back to the David O. McKay uh, um, presidency. And I think he really then wants to make sure that there is a revelation. And so really, in the Latter-day Saint scriptural canon, we have one revelation on, on race and priesthood, and it comes in June 1978. Um, that should also indicate to us uh, Brigham Young is not claiming a revelation. Uh, prior church leaders are not claiming a revelation. They're thinking back to what they remember as historical precedent and basing their standing and policy on those historical precedents. Uh, President Kimball is claiming a revelation. Uh, in June of 1978. And he sets about uh, laying the groundwork for that uh, when he becomes prophet. So it's it's a very intentional thing that he's doing. And it reminds me of Doctrine and Covenants, where it talks about these decisions that you're making should be unanimous in the quorums that are that are going on. The First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, Quorum of the Seventy, and President Kimball goes to each of these quorums systematically, and they come out with a unanimous decision that this ban is going to end. Brigham Young didn't do that. And in fact, there were there were those in leadership that pushed back on him for his views, which I just think is really interesting. But since the ban has ended, there continues to be a lot of confusion in the church among members about whether or not God wanted that ban in place or not. What are your thoughts? Tell, tell us, tell us you, kind of your position on that, and then we can move into to some additional thoughts. 
Yeah, in terms of uh, is is uh, were the racial restrictions of divine origins? I'm uh, very clear on that. I do not believe the racial restrictions were of divine origins. Uh, and as a historian, I think we have a very clear uh, record that kind of creates this uh, process whereby in fits and starts, the restrictions uh, accumulated growing precedent and uh, solidified over time. Uh, there's no firm line in the sand, uh, but uh, it just sort of starts to uh, um, grow stronger and stronger, firmly, I think, in place by the beginning of the 20th century under Joseph F. Smith, and then it takes an additional uh, 70 years to get rid of. I, I don't believe it's of divine origins. Okay, um, and throughout the 19th and 20th centuries before the ban ended, we saw a variety of justifications for the ban. People were talking about how, um, oh, black people can't have the priesthood because they, they're, they're under the curse of Cain or they were less valiant in the pre-existence, things like that, that the church has openly disavowed. But since the ban has ended, it has kind of given rise to a new set of justifications um, for why it may have been God's will. I want to talk about some of these and, and maybe walk us through some of your thoughts on them. Alex, have you heard about any of these these justifications? I, I really, no, I haven't. And so that's why I'm really eager to, to hear what, what we have to say about all of this. So one thing that I've heard, for example, and it's something that like I've thought of, like, oh, okay, well, maybe that makes sense. You know, I think we've all maybe been through that. But uh, for example, the idea that there's precedent for a, a priesthood restriction uh, because in the Old Testament, only the Levites could have the priesthood and nobody else could. So, so maybe some people think maybe that's what's going on with the priesthood ban today. What is kind of your response to that? Yeah, I think uh, it's really important to challenge our own assumptions. Uh, so if the tribe of Levi explanation is, uh, based on um, simplified assumptions, then I think we need to dig a little bit more deeply and challenge those. First of all, we could just simply say that uh, Professor Randy Bott at BYU was teaching that as a justification. Uh, and after that became public in the 2012 Washington Post article, uh, the church uh, said the things that Randy Bott was teaching are not church doctrine. So that's a really easy way to just simply say it's been declared not doctrine and we should not continue to perpetuate it. But we can also just think through uh, the tribe of Levi explanation. The tribe of Levi uh, was given the uh, authority to administer uh, the law of Moses for all the other tribes. Basically functioning the, the way that temple workers function in, in present-day Latter-day Saint temples. Welcoming them into the tabernacle and helping them to fulfill uh, the ordinances that are required according to the law of Moses. That was their duty. Mm -hmm. In other words, it didn't keep people out like the racial priesthood and temple restrictions did. It welcomed them in. There was no one that was barred from receiving all of the rituals required by the faith at that time. Whereas the racial priesthood and temple restrictions barred people just because of the color of their skin, their African ancestry, from temple admission, receiving all the ordinances that their faith, their chosen faith said was necessary. Mm -hmm. So uh, really stark differences. And we also need to understand that 
even through the entire Old Testament period, it's not just limited to the tribal Levi. You have priesthood being used uh, by Book of Mormon people. You have also prophets in the Old Testament who aren't uh, of the tribal Levi, who are uh, presumably exercising priesthood. Uh, so we need to question maybe those standing assumptions. And just at the very base, remember that uh, that explanation has been declared not doctrinal by the church itself in 2012. So, so not doctrinal, and, and just in a nutshell, simply it's an apples to oranges comparison. It's not a true comparison. Absolutely. So speaking uh, to, to, to the Levitical um, justification, I really like, I've, I've, we have a list actually of these justifications that you've talked about in the past. Um, and I love the quote from, I believe it's Artist Partial mm-hmm. that you bring up, which is, um, I'm going to botch it, but it's, withholding or okay you, you know better than i do <laughs> yeah um now that you're bringing it up I'll, I'll probably mess it up but um let's see limiting the priesthood to one segment of the faithful is not the same as withholding the priesthood from one segment of the faithful yeah uh it's a false parallel in other words yeah yeah i think that's really interesting well what else have we got on this list yeah so there's a i mean there's a ton of stuff on this list but the one that that i'm looking at here is the, the whole Jews and Gentiles thing. So how the gospel went to the Jews before the Gentiles. And so people take that and, and justify it to like where maybe the priesthood would go to whites before blacks, that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's important, I think, maybe to, even to start in the New Testament to say that Jesus Christ obviously... Uh, uh, spread the gospel to the Samaritans. So there is even a false kind of assumption that uh, this justification is grounded in. But let's just focus on the restoration, right? Uh, We talk about the, the fullness of this last dispensation. Joseph Smith claims five revelations that says the gospel is to be preached unto every creature. We love his Latter-day Saints to quote, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. More specific than that is unto every creature. Who is supposed to be left out? Hmm. Who is left out by every creature in this last dispensation? And early Latter-day Saints took that seriously. Uh, We have the evidence because they're baptizing black people. They're not leaving them out. The gospel is to be spread to everyone. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ declares himself twice in 1831 in the Doctrine and Covenants using first-person language. I am no respecter of persons, and he claims all flesh as his own. What shade of flesh is supposed to be left out if Christ is claiming all flesh as his own? The very first person of black African descent baptized into the faith is uh, a former enslaved man known as Peter, baptized in Kirtland in 1830. And there have been black Latter-day Saints ever since. So it's just a way of erasing from Latter-day Saint history the black Latter-day Saint pioneers. Uh, suggesting that their faith didn't matter, suggesting that their sacrifices for this faith, including enslaved Black Latter-day Saints, that their faith didn't matter. John Burton is baptized as an enslaved person in the 1830s in Missouri. His uh, enslaver, Susan McCord, uh, her husband dies in 1838. He helps her and her young children get to Illinois safely. The first time he enters Latter-day Saint records, he's paying $1 cash tithing in Nauvoo as an enslaved man to widow Susan Burton. That's how his cash contribution is entered into the Nauvoo tithing record. 
he digs a grave for a fellow Latter-day Saint in winter quarters. Uh, eventually, he helps to found the town of Harawan, Utah. And when they decide they're going to build a proper church building, they send the clerk throughout the town to collect donations. And John Burton, an enslaved man, donates $15 to the building of the first chapel in Parowan, Utah, suggesting that the gospel was to white people first and then black people assumes that there were no Black Latter-day Saints before 1978 and erases the faith of people like John Burton from Latter-day Saint history. So that one in particular uh, is just blatantly false. Even from a, a priesthood perspective, like the idea that, that the priesthood was go, to go to white men first and then black men, it's simply not historically accurate because they did have the priesthood. That's right. From the beginning. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so uh, Q. Walker Lewis and Elijah Abel are two most well-documented black priesthood holders. There are others that slip past uh, the racial restriction, especially if one drop is the the measure uh, we know now with DNA evidence, there are people of uh, African ancestry who are ordained to the priesthood. If one drop is the measure, uh, then there has never been a period of Latter-day Saint history with black, without black priesthood holders. Hmm. Good luck ferreting out one drop of anyone's ancestry. We have people in the 21st century, white Latter-day Saints who have contacted me, said we have African ancestry in our DNA. Uh, we believe it traces back to this ancestor. So, for example, um, Sarah Mode Hopheins is baptized in Pennsylvania, is the first person of African ancestry that we're aware of to receive full temple rituals, and it's in 1845 in Nauvoo. She likely passed as white by that point. Her father was black, her mother was white, and all future census records after 1840 identify her as white, but nonetheless, her descendants in the 21st century continue to have African ancestry in their DNA. So I'm just pointing out the fact that you try to police racial boundaries, good luck. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, these are people of uh, mixed racial ancestry who were Latter-day Saints who demonstrated profound faith uh, she was sealed to her husband, Peter Hoffheins, who's a German immigrant in Brigham Young's office in Salt Lake, uh, received her endowment in Nauvoo, uh, died a practicing Latter-day Saint, and her descendants to, this, to the present continue to uh, have African ancestry in their DNA. So by suggesting that the gospel is to go to white people first and then to black people, you're suggesting that you can even determine who is white and black. But also, you are erasing uh, Black Latter-day Saints from Latter-day Saint history. So another justification that uh, we hear, and, and this kind of has arisen from the refutations of all of these other justifications, some people just throw their hands up and say, well, we don't really know why the ban is in place. It just was, and we, you know, accept it. God wanted it for some reason. We don't know why. What's your response to that? Well, I don't particularly care for that explanation simply because Brigham Young is very adamant that he knows. Uh, so we can't we can't pretend that Brigham Young's 5th of February speech just doesn't exist. And he says he knows. He says because black people in his mind are cursed descendants of Cain, they are barred from the priesthood because Cain killed Abel. Like he gives us the reason. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we can't at the same time say uh, trust the prophet and then say not trust the prophet, right? Um, because he clearly is on record saying he knows why the racial restrictions are are being articulated. 
so I don't care as a historian for the we don't know explanation because uh, we have a lot of new information. These new speeches that have been transcribed give us context uh, that wasn't available before. And we have the Pittman version of Brigham Young's 5th of February speech, and he's clearly stating why. Uh, so uh, it feels irresponsible to me to, to suggest that we don't know when, when we have a lot of information as to how this actually uh, started and then accumulated growing precedent over time. I feel like a lot of members maybe, um, it, it, it's not, the, the general membership probably isn't doing this research. They're not digging that deep into the origins of, of this practice. So I feel like the kind of the we don't know justification and some of these other justifications are more, this is what I've heard and I'm just gonna kind of parrot it out as, as what my opinion is. But if we dig into these historic records, it's, it's clearly not the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. We talked a little bit about um, the curse of Cain and the curse of Ham. Um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think we need to go any further with those simply because the church has disavowed them and, and said, you know, these are not true. Um, and they're not. So don't use those. Don't perpetuate those, please. <laughs> are we missing any other ones? Paul, have you heard any that we haven't covered yet? Uh, well, giving black people the priesthood uh, would have destroyed the church is uh, another yes. one, right? So I was wondering about that one too. Yeah, the cultural context of the time in this explanation suggests that uh, treating black people equally would somehow have brought down the church. And it is true that uh, accusations leveled against Latter-day Saints in Missouri were that they had opened an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and free blacks, that they were promoting black ascendancy over the whites, that they didn't understand prevailing the prevailing racial order in the United States, that they had invited free blacks to Missouri to incite a slave rebellion and to steal our white wives and daughters, the Missourians said. So certainly the open racial attitude in the first couple of decades of the faith did cause problems. But did it destroy the church? No, it didn't. Uh, in, in my estimation, uh, Latter-day Saints love to refer to Joseph Smith's Wentworth letter, where he says, no unhallowed hand can stop this work from progressing. And yet, treating black people equally would. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we, we have to, uh, we, we can't have it both ways, in other words, right? We can't continue to simply say that the work will go uh, forth and, and challenged and then uh, uh, turn around and say that, well, the circumstance, historical circumstances of the time made it impossible for the church to treat black people equally. Yeah. Uh, the first couple of decades, uh, universal priesthood in temples, right? Uh, so that was in place. Um, and certainly it did bring outside scorn, but the outside scorn didn't go away once we implemented racial priesthood and temple restrictions. Outsiders continue to suggest that Latter-day Saint polygamy facilitated race mixing. Mm -hmm. Political cartoons across the course of the 19th century imagined Latter-day Saint polygamous families, uh, including uh, interracial marriages. It's um, on the cover of your book. The cover of the book is one great example, and that's published in 1904 in Life magazine. Mm -hmm. That's how long, even into the 20th century, that idea is perpetuated. So to suggest that uh, the internal policy somehow alleviated external kind of criticism is false as well. Wow. 
So a lo- another justification that uh, some people bring up for the ban has to do with official declaration one from Wilford Woodruff when polygamy was was ended. Um, but Wilford Woodruff mentions this line. He says that the Lord will never allow the prophet to lead the church astray. And therefore, some people take this idea and say, well, therefore, the priesthood ban must have been sanctioned by God because otherwise... It, this is an example of the prophet leading the church astray. Well, what what thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge we've been promised that this last dispensation will not end in apostasy as uh, every other prior dispensation. But nonetheless, uh, that doesn't mean that God revokes a prophet's agency when he makes him a prophet. And I think it's really important to contextualize Wilford Woodrow's statement, right? Within context, I think uh, what Woodruff was saying makes perfect sense. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States in May of 1890 had ruled against the the late corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The church had been disincorporated by the federal government mm. as they were attempting to bring polygamy to a halt. And uh, finally, in the Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court said if uh, Latter-day Saint church properties are being used for illegal purposes, that is to marry people polygamously, you can actually even start to confiscate them. Mm. So the Logan, Manti, and St. George temples are on the chopping block. And Woodruff is subpoenaed uh, in a case that would have required him to testify if they're being used for polygamous marriages. He goes to California and returns and issues that manifesto. In response, you have some Latter-day Saints who suggest Woodruff is a fallen prophet. He's bowed to political pressure. He isn't doing God's will. He's just simply caving on polygamy because of the political pressure from the federal government. This is something that Latter-day Saints have defended for decades. And now all of a sudden we're going to capitulate. And President Woodruff goes around Utah Territory giving several speeches. A couple of them are recorded in Official Declaration 1, wherein he says, look, I received a revelation. He's defending the manifesto as a revelation. God showed me if we don't abandon polygamy, they're going to be running uh, through our temples. We must abandon polygamy to preserve temple worship. God gave me a revelation. He's not going to give me a revelation that will lead us astray. Within context, he's defending the manifesto as a revelation. Hmm. God won't give me a revelation that will lead us astray. Very different from a blanket statement that uh, might suggest that anything a prophet says over the dinner table is somehow God's word. Mm-hmm. He's simply defending the manifesto as a revelation, and God will not give me a revelation that will lead us astray. He showed me, he, he basically claims to say that, you know, God showed me what would happen if we cling to polygamy. We will lose our temples. The government will be confiscating them. He says the right choice to make is to abandon polygamy and preserve temple worship. And that's the choice he urges Latter-day Saints to make in the face of the accusation that he's a fallen prophet and he's bowed to political pressure. God won't give me a revelation that will lead us astray. That's an interesting interpretation, um, um, specifying that he is defending a revelation. It's, It's not saying that anything I say will be the right, like, he's not saying every word that comes out of my mouth will lead you down the correct path. He's saying this is a revelation. 
It's it's almost like he's essentially saying, God is your friend. He is not your enemy. He is not going to give me a revelation that will be bad for you. And the priesthood ban, you look at that, and and it wasn't presented as a revelation at all. That's right. Uh, Brigham Young doesn't claim a revelation. Uh, he's he's uh, defending his position as something that he knows is, is right. Uh, I think he believes it is right at the time that he's saying it, but uh, not claiming a revelation. And in fact, uh, the only person claiming a revelation is uh, Spencer W. Kimball in 1978. Hmm. That was powerful. Uh, <laughs> in fact... 1978. Um, I think we have, there's, there's one more justification that we hear sometimes. Uh, I'm forgetting what it is. We, we wrote it down, though. It was. We typed it out. So another justification that is out there is that this was back then when everybody was racist, that racism was totally common and it was whatever. It was just a, that's just how things were, you know? So what 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 would you say about that? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a historian and historians teach against uh, this idea of presentism. Presentism is simply the notion that we shouldn't superimpose the present on the past, meaning that um, where we're at in 2022 uh, in our understandings and our practices and our policies doesn't mean that that's how things worked in 1852, for for example. So I agree with that, but sometimes people um, push presentism too far and suggest, well, everyone was racist back then, so it was just these these people were trapped by their historical circumstances. I completely disagree because people in the past, people in the 19th century, actually articulated a position of full racial equality for black people. Not everyone was racist back then. So if it was uh, seen as racism in the 19th century, you're not judging the past by the present. You're judging the past by its own terms. And we have uh, Joseph Smith, who was a product of the 19th century, who sanctioned black male uh, priesthood ordination. We have Orson Pratt, who is an apostle uh, and also a product of the 19th century, who advocated for black male voting rights in 1852 in Utah Territory. Uh, uh, Sidney Rigdon, a product of the 19th century, articulates a position of black racial equality in the 19th century. These are all people who are products of the 19th century who are articulating positions of equality. Therefore, everyone is not racist back then. And that presumption is also grounded in the the sense that, well, all white people are racist back then because black people certainly recognize slavery as wrong uh, and uh, are advocating for full black equality, including people like Frederick Douglass. So you're erasing all of the other minority groups who are experiencing racism and suggesting that, well, they're just happy with this system. So in all of those ways, it's just a really horrible explanation and justification uh, trying to um, defend uh, the racial restrictions through historical circumstances, and it doesn't hold up to historical scrutiny. Especially, as I understand it, at least over time, as you know, you get into the 20th century and you go through the civil rights movement and you get into the 1970s, the ban wasn't ended until 1978, but you can't use this excuse in, you know, the 1970s that everybody's racist, especially after the civil rights movement. And so it just, it, 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 it puts you in a pickle. If yeah. you're doing this. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and you know, we teach uh, the rising generation they need to rise above the cultural norms of their day. 
right? And yet we can't expect uh, people in the past to rise above the cultural norms of their day, even if they were norms. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it ignores the fact that there were immediate abolitionists who are arguing for full black equality and immediate emancipation of slavery. Uh, that existed in the past as well. So maybe just to round this episode out and, and conclude, this information and, and kind of looking at some of these justifications, um, this is going to be hard for a lot of members of the church to swallow, um, just because um, a lot of members still believe that the priesthood ban was sanctioned by God. Um, and, and I and I think there are going to be a lot of people that, that might get a little defensive as they hear this information, they hear this position. Um, what advice would you have for them to kind of give them kind of a soft landing space when it comes to this issue? Yeah, I, I think uh, my frustration is I wish that Latter-day Saints were willing to recover even uh, the open racial vision of uh, the revelations uh, that began the restoration. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, we have five revelations that say the gospel is to be taken unto every creature. By the turn of the 20th century, we have church leaders who are saying don't actively seek out people of black African descent for conversion even. There's a reason why it became a white church uh, in the 20th century. Uh, so my position is simply let's not deny or defend this, but what if we used our own racial uh, story to stand in places of empathy in the 21st century? Uh, what if we um, acknowledge that Latter-day Saints participated in racism in the past? We confess, which is a part of repentance. We confess uh, our, our racial past. We openly acknowledge it. We also then um, say we have learned the consequences of participating in racism. Uh, we also experience a soft form of racism, outsiders suggesting that Latter-day Saints uh, weren't quite white enough in the 19th century, uh, racialized as unfit for participants in democracy. So instead of being hobbled by our racial past, what if we used it uh, as a resource to stand in places of empathy. We participated in racism, we've come to learn its consequences, we experienced a soft version of it ourselves, and therefore what better people in the 21st century to stand in places of empathy and to speak out on issues of racial justice than Latter-day Saints. Rather than be hobbled by our past, what if we used it and turned it to our advantage to actually take a proactive stance against racism in the 21st century? That's what I hear President Nelson actually asking us to do. I love that. Thank you, Paul. And I, and I, if I might add, it's really important that we listen to our black brothers and sisters when it comes to this issue. I mean, obviously, we're all you know three white people up here, and, and perhaps we haven't felt the consequences of this priesthood restriction as acutely as, as our black brothers and sisters. So it's important that we listen to them, um, and we've got some interviews that uh, off the top of my head, there's one I'm thinking of that has come out and we'll be having more coming out um, that that put those voices forward. Um, and it's also something that you're trying to do as well from a historian standpoint with Century of Black Mormons, which we talked a little bit about in the last episode. If you haven't checked that out yet, go check that out. Also check out Paul's book, Religion of a Different Color. Um, what other stuff should they check out from you? You've got a whole host of things. Uh... There's there's the Faith Matters interview with Terrell Gibbons, and then the Faith Matters uh, short essay that's available at the Faith Matters website. I don't know if you guys 
cross promote other people. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. You've been on all sorts of stuff. Maxwell Institute podcast, LBS Living's podcast. You, you're just type in his name and you'll find all sorts of stuff. Anything else to add before we, we close? No, I don't think so. Good to go. Guys, thanks for watching. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch our videos, check us out on YouTube or shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.